Section 2 of G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns The New Witness, 1919-1920 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeremiah Tyler G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns the New Witness, 1919-1920, by G. K. Chesterton. Section 2. Tag-Tug and the Tree of Knowledge A sense of stupidity can easily descend on and darken the brain. As when I, for one to say that I do not understand this or that, I do not necessarily imply the suspicion that there is nothing to be understood. In all sincerity, or stupidity, there are many of my own affairs that I do not understand. This paper is in theory, and theories, an affair of mine. But I have not either the training or the time to understand all of it. I fear I am a little vague, for instance, about the quarrel between two brilliant young writers who have brightened my existence, Mr. Scott Moncrief and Mr. Nichols, but I am very glad it has now ended in friendly apologies, for at one time it seemed a little alarming. When it comes to the soldiers of the Great War being respectfully reproached, with their glorious wounds and maladies, a new and curious kind of controversy becomes possible. It is as if one of them should denounce the other as notorious DSO, and the latter goaded to fury, should expose the former as secretly indulging in a Victoria Cross. Apropos of such limitations, I should like to thank Mr. Heron Lepper for his far too generous review of my hasty notes on Ireland, while assuring him that I should not myself have made so serious a display of the book, and I hope he will take its prominence as something due to him and not to me. But there are not only practical, but also theoretic things that I honestly do not understand, and one of them is a certain kind of scientific statement which the rationalist implicitly suggests that he does not understand. In the Observer the other day, I came upon an instance of the scholarly information which puzzles a popular intelligence. It is in a very interesting article by a learned man, Professor Sace, on the old Babylonian, or rather, it seems, Sumerian version of the story of Adam. The sentence runs thus. The Sumerian name of the prototype and eponym of the human race was Tagtug, or as it was usually pronounced, Utu. Now I have no doubt that there is an explanation of this. But I think an explanation is required. If I were learned enough to instruct the general reader in such things, I should instruct him a little more. If I had to say that my family name was Chesterton, pronounced Ubabu, I should have a sense that some further inquiries might be made. If I had to introduce a man by the name of Smith, 
and to assure everybody that it was pronounced brown, I should anticipate a certain faint surprise and curiosity following the communication. I should be moved either to linger on the paradox or to leave it out, but I do not doubt that Professor Sace mentions it thus casually because the fact is connected with other facts with which he is quite familiar. But the fact for the ordinary reader, without any further explanation, savors a little too much of that American philologist who complained that we spell a word B-E-A-U-C-H-A-M-P and call it Chumley. But the mystification of the mere outsider goes beyond the superficial wonder about why a man with a fine, firm, expressive name like Tagtug should have consented to be addressed by so sentimental a pet name as Utu. There is also the problem involved in the very antiquity and obscurity of the subject. How can Professor Sace be so exceedingly certain about how people who lived before the Babylonians pronounced a word as distinct from how they wrote it? Has he wandered about among the prehistoric Sumerians, forlornly and fruitlessly calling out, Tag-tug! to find their faces light up at last with recognition when it occurred to him to pronounce it Utu? When the archaeologist found the ruins of Nippur, the cuneiform tablet simply and conspicuously inscribed Tag-tug, what echoes of old Sumerian conversation still lingered in those ruins, faintly repeating, Utu! as with ghostly voices like horns of elfland faintly blowing? I repeat that I readily believe there is an answer to these questions. I readily believe that the professor is right. But I am not writing to point out that the professor is wrong, but rather to point out that the modern reader is wrong when he supposes that his own scientific reading is based on reason or even consists of statements in themselves reasonable. There are few of the things called the mysteries of religion that I myself find so mystifying as that single sentence. There are few of the things controversially cited as the contradictions of Scripture that I find so inherently contradictory. Now, Professor Sace himself writes at the beginning of the article as if all our views of scriptural texts and even of religious mysteries had been revolutionized and rationalized by this very type of information. Science, he says, has obliged us to change our ideas, not only of the age and origin of man himself, but also of the origin of evil and of such theological problems as the consciousness of sin. This silent revolution of ideas has been assisted by the discovery and decipherment of the ancient records of the Near East. In short, our attitude to our own sin is altered by the discovery that the Sumerians called Adam Tagtug, when clarified and simplified by the further discovery that they called Tagtug Utu. I do not know how others feel after this exposition and enlightenment, 
but in my own private psychology, such theological problems as the consciousness of sin stick pretty much where they were. For my part, I do not think that poor old Tagtug, let alone Adam, can be dismissed so easily. Yet the immemorial civilization of the Near East, so old it seems always to have been civilized, like the camel, has a tradition that the first men began to fall away from some high standards set for them from the start. I think that tradition is truer than history, as well as philosophy, than most of the half-educated and tenth-rate talk about evolution. If successive cults and cultures, one older than another, all lead back to one idea that man held happiness on a condition, and is unhappy through breaking that condition, I think they lead a long way nearer the truth of human psychology than the little bustling journeys of popular science. What in such stories is symbolic? What's sacred? What beyond contemporary comprehension I do not know, nor has any theologian yet asked me to accept on faith the fact that Adam was pronounced bingo. Professor Sace tells us that the Babylonian story mentions more than one tree, eight, I think, but I think he cannot see the truth for the trees. He tells us that the Babylonian version, as distinct from the Hebrew one, the flood was coincident with the fall as well as consequent on the fall. But I find it much more interesting that they agree about why it came than they differ about when it came. In abstract, and as a matter of personal taste, therefore, Tagtug is good enough for me. I think this ancient and mysteriously suggestive story a very suitable starting place for that real evolution that ends in the best practical morality that I know. I should be quite content, if necessary, to say that in Tagtug all died, so long as I could still say that in Christ all were made alive. But Tagtug himself, even when pronounced Utu, is perhaps a little lacking in all this later and more living historical justification. He is not what you might call a name to conjure with now, however you pronounce him. And of the two versions of an exceedingly tenable tradition, I may be pardoned for adhering to the one which is not only true as a poem, but has in a sense come true as a prophecy. But whether or no I am right in accepting such mystical assumptions, my point here is that fashionable scientific culture makes assumptions every bit as mystical, and states them, as in the case of Utu, in language very much more mystifying. Whatever may be said about the Sumerian or Semitic story of the origin of man, there is not much more real logic or real evidence in the version of the origin of man now taught to thousands of people under the title of science. Mr. Wells has not got so far as man in his history of man, which we all anticipate with such pleasure, but his publisher has adorned the cover of the first issue 
with a picture of primitive man as now conceived. In so far as primitive man is a man, he is more or less modeled on a butler having a bath. But he is made primitive by being flattened and brutalized so as to look like a frog. There is the same scientific evidence for this picture as there is for the godlike and golden-haired Adam of Paradise Lost. But I know that multitudes seeing that picture will think it is science and the other only poetry. For the rest, many theories of evolution have appeared and have collapsed, as the whole scientific theory of the cosmic basis is said to have collapsed. And if I were writing a human history professedly concrete and outside controversy, I should not begin on any disputed or dissolving Darwinian hypothesis, any more than I should begin with Tagtug and his eight trees, or Adam and his two trees. I should say that human civilization was too old to test even its own oldest traditions, and that the wisest were doubtful about the origin of man, as about the origin of matter. In short, I should be an agnostic, a thing almost unknown nowadays. And I should add that outside this mystery there are two things. There is faith, and there is fancy. The former refers to some religion, and the latter produces what the Victorian poet called with unconscious irony, the fairy tales of science. End of section two. Tag Tug and the Tree of Knowledge. Recording by Jeremiah Tyler.